0: Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience.
1: Kevin Plank, I should note that in November, you'll start your 14th year as a public company CEO and chairman, which is like 65 human years. Two and a half times, two and a half times the, uh, the average this. tenure for a CEO, and we're not portending anything, but but let's start at the beginning then. What's the inspiration? How, how do you have the gall to think you can compete with the juggernauts that are Nike and Adidas when you started Under Armour?
0: You know, I didn't start the company to say, how do I build a, you know, a global sports brand? And... I began the company with saying I was an athlete and I didn't like the way my t-shirt felt and said, wow, nobody's ever addressed these soaking wet, short-sleeved cotton t-shirts that we wear under our our pads or our uniforms. And I started by just making the best t-shirt in the world for football players. And that singular focus was like, I'm just going to make the best t-shirt for them. And I realized very quickly before starting with the ambition of all the ethos of what Under Armour meant, which today we define our mission statement as making you better, it was a more of an idea than a product. And I think that's what you, and that product or that, that idea is what's established the ethos for our brand. And soon a, a short sleeve shirt turned to a long sleeve shirt, and the long sleeve shirt turned to the short. And the short then said, Wow, we now have the apparel. Can you do something for cold weather that has the same principles for, uh, for warm weather? And then it was, Well, why can't you make a shoe? And all of these sort of machinations of the brand, all these chapters that we've lived, you know, every, your head is down, you're chopping wood, and you look up, and you find that, especially in our industry, it's not a zero-sum game of, in order for us to win, someone else has to lose. And so we've enjoyed being complimentary to the market, but yes, without question, we are competitors, and we, we're proud to look up and say we're part of that global ecosystem today from sports landscape.
1: You had an offer, $750 million in cash, you're 31 years old, you obviously decided not to take the cash to go IPO. What was that decision process, and how did you think through making that uh, critical decision at that point?
0: The the calculus came down to, do I want? um, What do I want to do? And I must have asked, you know, soliciting feedback from I think close to 30 or 40 people. And of all everybody I talked to, it was, um, you know, one was, well, when are you closing? You know, like uh, another one was. It was your lead director, by the way. It was (laughs) of course, like when do you? Of course, you would take it. And again, from them, you know, we started with a call it a, a price in the cover of two to three prior to the road show. And so, you know, this price would have been equivalent to like eight or $9. And like looking at that level, there's a lot of risk for our board of directors to say, you know, if we don't take this, we're vul- vulnerable to some of the other smaller shareholders to sue us. So there's a lot of risk in doing it. Um, but I think the, the moral in the story comes to, um, as I solicited feedback, again, all but four people said to me, well, of course you would sell the company. And the f- one was um, my CFO at the time, a guy named Wayne Marino, who'd, who'd come from Nautica and had just been sold to uh, VF, and he kind of knew what that world was like. And he's like, I, I, I think we just got runway. I, I wouldn't do it. And it was coming from him. I thought it was yeah. he had a ton to gain if he did it, and he had a ton of risk if he, if he suggested not to. Uh, the second was a guy that I worked with, the first guy in our commercials, he's better known as Big E. Um, who played nine years in the NFL, but he looks famous, but he's not famous. <laughs> it's for, I wish He was we more had, a, fam- I wish we had a picture. He'd get stomped for being the Under Armour guy in the airport and <laughs> things. But, but anyway, he's uh, and he still works with us today. He's a terrific partner. And he was just like, man, we just, uh, he's like, you've got to, what he said was, he's like, you know, we've got a, we've got a song. There's a song in our head, and, and the world deserves to hear that music. And it was like, that was, um, the third was my largest customer, which was Ed Stack of Dick's Sporting Goods. And he simply said, you know, he's like, Kev, for me, it was never about the money. And at that point, you're always like, oh, you're just saying that. You think we'll be a better <laughs> partner? Um, but he meant it, he really did. And I think that comes through. And, you know, Ed is, you know, we've been standing there as, you know, 14 years public together or 16 for him. Um, and the last was my wife. And I just asked her, I said, uh, I said what do you think? And she just sort of said, like, but Kevin, you love Under Armour. You know why would you why would you do that? And it was sort of that that um, it was that I guess understanding of like what do you want to do? And it was a combination of there was more to do. I did believe we had more runway. I mean, the fiduciary obligation I feel is that if I was ever offered a dollar amount greater than what I felt that I could build the company to, it was my obligation to sell it, not some you know personal quest. And so I feel like I've always lived that. But, um, you know, I look back 14 years and we've seen the peaks and valleys and we've been in the arena and that is it. Resilience is like the most, like you're not going to have all great days, you know, and you need to prepare yourself for that. And, um, and that's not a bad thing. It's like it is part of what tests you. But nobody like says, I really love it and I love the fight. Like, yeah, you love those things, but you like to win. And uh, you always want to have the line of sight to some ability to make sure you capture that. You
1: went from... I don't want to say ragtag, but you went from a, a, a group of sort of scrappy interests, some, some roommates, some yeah. fellow players, to, to now you've got to institutionalize the business. You've got to transform it in these later years. How, how, do you, how do you manage the balance of bringing in tenured professionals with that culture of go fast, go hard, go go immediately i mean i think
0: it leads from the other the, the first question which is you know tell about a team is you've got to be careful of making aligning yourself with the business it's important because people need to know the buck stops here um that's really critical investors are they're buying into the person and your management teams they'll turn and they'll move over and i look at our, our existing team today of our top 12 in our company and uh, we've got about uh, a third or four executives uh four to five years or less a third four executives you know five to ten years uh, between that scale and about a third, four executives, you know, 10 years plus. And like that evolution is uh, it's important to try to press it on the team. And I, I really got aligned with our company and we did, you know we we're doing media and we were doing CNBC and we we're talking, we we're out there beating the drum and telling the story, because you believe, you really believe in it so much. And to a point, it does take that force of nature, that force of personality, that force of will who's driving your business. And then you get to a point as we've gotten larger, it is about the process. It is about the culture, and the culture is more than just a few slogans on a board. The culture is in how are you building a business and a model that's repeatable, that isn't reliant on the one, you know, the the killer that you've got in job A, B, or C, but someone that you can, regardless of who you're placing in there, can do it and do it over and over again.
1: Talk about macro influencers. Micro influencers in today's Instagram age, and how you're thinking about balancing that portfolio of, of uh, influencers to amplify the brand.
0: You know, I think a lot of times I get people ask how long we've been in business. You know, we'll be heading into our 23rd year, and uh, it usually shocks people. And it's because technically we didn't really get credit for the first 10 or 15. And and um, but we've sort of we've seen the evolution of where it was. Look, you you. you You know, you made a commercial, you know, it started with once in the fall and it sort of inspired and it carried through and, you know, product and momentum would just sort of drag us through the year every year. Um, And then you get to where it's not about how am I gonna make a Super Bowl commercial, I need one great, you know, anthemic that's going to inspire people. But it is about the micro influencer. And so there is an audience where our digital, our our, our media spent has gone from traditional to digital media to it's basically transforming become this link in our business. Well, we have this, what we call our connected fitness business, which is a collection of three apps um, that make up over a 240 million person ecosystem of downloads we have with more than 50, monthly, uh, 50 million monthly actives that we have on it that are giving us data like uh, it's the world's largest food database through MyFitnessPal, um, what we have with uh, uh my run and tracking exercise workouts, but it's 14 billion foods logged. It's a, a billion and a half workouts logged every year. And there's this vision and dream of like, how can we actually be a benefit to the consumer where they're coming to us, where literally their job and expectation of our brand is to make them better. So the dynamic has shifted from a high dollar, how do we spend and just get The Rock? And there's nothing wrong with having The Rock with 110 million Instagram followers, and that's very powerful as a partner. But just because The Rock posts something doesn't mean it sells either. <laughs> it's like, you don't forget to tell the story. The product has to be excellent, it has to fit the DNA of the brand, it has to be the best, and you have to tell the story.
1: I love it. I, wanna, I, wanna, uh, I want you to tell the Jordan Spieth story because as you think about influencers, you, you've, you've certainly, what's the proposition to the athlete, why Under Armour? And I think as, as you've thought about, and I think Jordan's a great example uh, uh, of that, that sort of underdog mentality that's going to represent the brand, T- tell us that, that, that story. How, how, what's the proposition when you go to an athlete, why Under Armour versus Nike or Adidas?
0: I mean, some athletes. Jordan was an athlete growing up. He was a baseball player, and he loved football, and he, you know, loved basketball. And his brother played basketball at Brown University, and he's a, he was a competitor. And when we went and, um, and the reason that we actually got to Jordan Spieth is because we'd spent about two years. This is back in 2012, um, going after a golfer by the name of Rory McElroy. <laughs> and two years invested in relationships and chasing these things, and then we had this meeting over at the Olympics in 2012 in London, walked out from his, his agents, and it was one of those presentations that was like, uh, we want to give you the presentation. Like, no, no, we know Rory, we just want to sign him and we want to get this thing done. And it was, um, you know, that started with, you know, sort of Rory is a brand. We're like, oh gosh, the agents are going down a different road. And, and within moments, the deal went from we can sign Rory to... Nike came in and offered him twice as much money as we had on the table. And we were outsized. The next year we were about a two billion, a little more than a two billion dollar company. And, and I was so, we were so upset from like all this time invested, it's like it comes down to money or it comes down to having a relationship at a very early point in time. And we pressed it to our head of golf and just said I want the best idea that you have in golf. And it took him a couple weeks and then he came back he said another, we need another week. By the time he finally came back he had this dossier of this guy named Jordan Spieth and he said he's young, He's tough. He's an athlete, uh, and then I met him and his his father um, in our campus, and you know we signed this 19-year-old who was a out um, of a freshman of the University of Texas, and we signed him to a four-year deal, and it was year two that in 2015 uh, we actually re-upped him for a 10-year deal that was a nine-figure deal, and it was that he hadn't won his first major yet. And part of it was the belief that we had that when we give that confidence, especially to a golfer, the most important six inches are here in a golfer. Most of those guys are equally as talented. And then it's, but it's things like with those relationships with them too is, you know, we actually, we had, we were going to CES when he actually signed his new contract in in 2015. And we were out there, like we had a, um, and he just did his new deal and it was on And I said, I'm counting on you. And then I also said, I'm counting on you. And I went down to the sports book and I bought a ticket with $10,000 for Spieth to win at 15 to 1. And I sent him a picture of it, and I said, I know you're going to win. And in the big scheme of things, true story. And then, and then he absolutely came back and said, when are we cashing the ticket? And I said, we were. And then we gave all the money to his charity, of course, which was like, but it was this, like, how do you make that athlete feel like it's part of you? Like, this isn't just, boy, they got lucky, and they signed yeah. Stephen Curry. Stephen Curry had been in the NBA for three years and hadn't made the All-Star team when we signed him. And so I believe as much as us, pushing for Stefan to come be the face of Under Armour basketball was as much about um, um, helping establish his belief as yeah. well. Like yeah. He's an excellent basketball player, and it's not because of Under Armour, but it certainly doesn't hurt when we say, we, are, we need you to be our face, and you're going to go against KD, and you're going to go against LeBron, and we're going to have you as our yeah. Yeah. Uh, stalwart, and he absolutely lived up to that and every bit of it.
1: Step, step back in time, you're an entrepreneur in this audience, what, what, what looking back, do you know now? You wish you'd known then.
0: I would, I would appreciate the great years. Like people always say, I love, I love when I was, you know, when it was small, when I was just an entrepreneur, when I was just getting started. Like, really appreciate those. Like, really appreciate the good years. The bad years can really be horrible. <laughs> like, um, But you find silver linings in all of them. And, and, and I wouldn't take any of it for granted either. You know, there's things as a large company with... You know we've got forty-one offices now and fourteen and fourteen thousand plus employees, and you look at that sort of expansion, and it's great when you're young and you're an entrepreneur. You can walk in the office and you can affect the culture and the vibe in that office every day, and it begins to feed off you. And it's almost a double-edged sword. And you want to be careful with it, because you want to make sure that where that does need to rely on the principal, on 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 the founder, on the on the on the. The center of what the brand is meant to be because you're constantly defining and redefining and that's what i'm finding now is that the things that were our culture that defined our brand or business i'm now constantly thinking through how do i evolve from that how do i make sure that we're not just some you know museum piece under a piece of glass somewhere but we are this proactive living breathing thing which is brand and brand is special it wasn't that we made a great t-shirt that we had a better idea, that people should be thinking about their apparel as a piece of equipment. And that's what allowed us to really grow and prosper. So
2: (laughs) this podcast was recorded on October 18th, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed.